God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. We've seen in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And we looked at how that practically applies in our lives, that he is Lord of everything. He's declaring to be Lord of all. We sing break the hard and stony ground and help our unbelief. I wonder if you would say this morning that you have a hard heart. Somebody asked you, are you a hard-hearted individual? I wonder if you would say yes. I wonder if you would say sometimes, maybe seldom. When we sing that song and we're asking that God would break the hard and stony ground and to help us in our unbelief. I think this morning we will see that we are all in need of that prayer being answered more than we might even know. Our hearts might be harder than we could possibly imagine. And the hard-heartedness shows itself very often in our circles in legalism and through legalism. I wonder if you were asked by somebody, if somebody came to you and they said, can you define for me what legalism is? What would your answer be? How would you define legalism? And then if they went a step further and they asked you, okay, that's what legalism is. Now, why is it dangerous? What are the dangers of legalism? We've been looking at several different controversies that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders. These last two out of five that we've looked at have dealt with legalism, with Sabbath day controversies. The five total, we began in chapter two, verses one through 12, looking at Jesus saying to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, making himself equal with God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's true. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins. I am God. I'm going to heal this man. The religious leaders are not going to enjoy Jesus declaring himself equal with God. The second controversy was Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. He calls Levi to follow him and then he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders do not like that. The third controversy is that the disciples of Jesus were not fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist were fasting, but Jesus' disciples weren't. And then finally, we looked at last Lord's Day, the disciples of Jesus were picking the heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, breaking the traditional laws that the Pharisees had given. They were not breaking any divinely inspired or ordained laws, but they were breaking the laws of the Pharisees and thus angering the religious leaders. And we have one last Sabbath day controversy to look at. It's in chapter three, verses one through six. And this last controversy is staggering. R.C. Sproul would always say, as you're preaching, find the drama in the passage and preach the drama. That's not hard to do in this text. The drama is everywhere. Every single verse is dripping with tension and drama. And it's really all about these five controversies are given to us in a staccato fashion by Peter, who's giving all of this information to Mark, who's writing it down. Mark and Peter are choosing this 
to highlight the difference between religion and genuine salvation in Jesus Christ alone. What is the nature of salvation? What's the nature of being right with God? What's the nature of how we are reconciled with the God of the universe? That's what these controversies are getting at. There's going to be more controversies to come. In fact, Mark is going to staccato fashion, put five together again later in his book. They will be in Jerusalem. These five have been in Galilee. But these last two controversies, these Sabbath day controversies, are so clearly about pharisaical legalism. We looked last Lord's Day at the picking of the heads of grain on the Sabbath day, and we said that in order to not go down the road of being a Pharisee, number one, we need to beware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. Number two, we need to beware of getting the little things right while we get the big things wrong. And then number three, we need to joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord of all. Those were the three aspects of how we can safeguard ourselves from becoming like the Pharisees. But my question this morning is what happens if you don't live out those warnings? If you don't heed those warnings, if you don't live according to those warnings, and you go down that road of being like a Pharisee, what will happen? And the answer is what we will see this morning in Mark 3, 1 through 6. Let's read it together. Mark 3, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him, the religious leaders, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. These are the words of our gracious, holy, and awesome God. Let's ask his blessing on our time this morning. Father, we pray what we sang earlier. God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every tongue and heart would confess that Christ is Lord. As Paul says, we can only do that. We can only declare that Christ is Lord with joy in our hearts, joyfully submitting to him as Lord. We can only do that by the Spirit. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law so that we would be able to declare with joy in our hearts our submission to Jesus as Lord and Master that our will is no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been crucified with Christ. And we are no longer our own. So may we glorify you this morning as we give careful attention to your word. Speak to us. 
direct us, guide us, encourage us, challenge us, and point us to Christ. Show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. What happens if you don't live out those three principles we looked at last Lord's Day? I think we'll see three things from this text. So let's dive right in. Verse one, Jesus enters again into a synagogue. It's the Sabbath. He's going to enter again. So the Sabbath day controversy from last week is done. We're moving into another controversy. Last time we saw the disciples with Jesus just walking through the grain fields. And it just so happened that the Pharisees saw them doing that and asked a question. But this Sabbath day controversy is a a whole separate level. This is next level controversy. There's a significant change in the mood of this controversy and in the setting of this controversy. Jesus initiates this one. He is taking the controversy to the Pharisees' home turf. You remember, we talked earlier that the Sadducees owned and controlled the temple. Right? They had worked with Rome. They were compromisers. They were um, the, the religious liberals of the day, um, the, the political liberals of the day. They were totally fine compromising on their values with Rome so that they could still have some sense of power and authority in a religious sense. So they owned and controlled and operated the temple. That's why when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's attacking the Sadducees and their whole scheme to make money for themselves and to own the people and to have power. When Jesus, by the way, he did the cleansing of the temple twice in his earthly ministry. He did it once at the beginning of his three and a half year ministry. And then he did it once at the end of his three and a half year public ministry. So he absolutely angers the Sadducees when he cleanses the temple and attacks them on their home turf. And the Pharisees would have loved that. Remember, the Pharisees said, we want no part of your hypocrisy and your compromising, Sadducees. We don't want any part of it. So we're not going to be in your temple teaching there. We're not going to learn from you. We're going to develop our own uh, houses of learning. And they called them synagogues. It developed during the intertestamental period. We're going to develop our own places where we learn and study the law. So when Jesus goes to attack the Sadducees in the temple, the Pharisees are applauding. Yes, they had it coming. But when Jesus then goes to attack the synagogues, he's attacking the Pharisees. And that's what he's doing here. He's attacking the Pharisees. Whereas the last, Sab- the last Sabbath day controversy had the Pharisees just happening to see the disciples. This time, there's no way they won't be able to see what Jesus is doing. He's taking the fight to them. He enters the synagogue and a man is there whose hand was withered. There's a man who has a disability in his hand. His hand is withered up, can't stretch it out. In verse 2, they're watching him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, are watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Why? Why are they watching? So that they might accuse him. And this leads us to the first danger of legalism. If you are not careful to live out the principles we said last Lord's Day, what are the dangers of legalism? What will then be produced in your heart? Number one, legalism produces a critical accusing heart. Legalism produces a critical accusing heart. And if you were here last Lord's Day and you have those three points, you could really put these together. Last Lord's Day, we said, point number one, we need to beware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. 
And if you don't do that, then you will be legalistic and it will produce a critical accusing heart. If you put your application of the law above the heart of the law, you will start to accuse people that do not measure up to your standards. Remember, we said last Lord's Day, legalism is when you make laws for yourself outside of the Bible and then hold others to those standards. It's not wrong for you to make a standard for yourself outside of the Bible to help you keep the standards of the Bible. That's totally fine if you want to do that. It's wrong if you do two things with that standard. It's wrong, number one, if you force other people to abide by that standard. We mentioned um, uh, drinking alcohol, right? We talked about that as an example. If you want to say, because the Bible's very clear, you are not allowed to get drunk. That would be disobeying God's law. That is a clear statement in the Bible. And if you want to say, you know what, I don't want to go near that. I don't want to get close to that. So I'm just not going to drink alcohol at all. And I know many people in our church who that is a standard for you. You just say, I'm not even going to go there. Is that wrong? No, not at all. Where it becomes wrong is if you say, and you shouldn't drink any either. If you take your standard and you put it on somebody else, or if you take your standard and you look down on somebody for not keeping your standard, or if you trust in your standard, if you say, you know what, I've made standards of righteousness outside of the Bible that will help me keep the Bible, and therefore I trust myself to keep them, and I can be righteous by my own rules. That's when it becomes legalism. That's what the Pharisees had done. With the Sabbath specifically, they had taken five sections in the Old Testament about the Sabbath, put them into 39 different categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and that turned into, in their writings about the Sabbath, 1,521 verses of what you could or couldn't do. They took five sections in the Old Testament and turned it into 1,500 verses of what you could or couldn't do. The day of rest that God had given to his people had become a weapon in the hands of the Pharisees. Why? Because they were looking to the Jews and looking down on them for not being better Jews than they were. This happens in the church all the time. This happens all the time in the church. When we look at somebody and say, okay, you're a Christian, that's fine. Good that you believe in Jesus, but are you a better Christian? Are you this upper tier class of being a Christian? Do you measure up to my standards? We don't want you to just be a Christian and follow Jesus. We want you to be, uh, hold all these crazy standards of righteousness that are outside the Bible and be the, the, the better form of Christian. And if you're not, we look down on you. <laughs> the whole point of the gospel gets lost in that form of legalism. And so they look at him to accuse him. When you have a legalistic heart, you become critical. You're always on the lookout for what is wrong, and you're seldom on the lookout for what is right. That's a, it's a great question for our hearts today, just practically. Do you tend to look down on others more than you look up to others? Do you tend to judge others more than you encourage others? Some of you might point to your own personality and say, well, I'm genuinely and generally a pessimistic person. Okay, fine. But the issue is, is your legalistic heart making you more judgmental than you ever should be? This is a type of life that grows from fault finding, from a critical judgmental heart. It's not a fun life and Frankly, nobody really wants to be around people like this. Pharisees are not happy people that you want to hang out with. They're always looking for ways to accuse Jesus and others around them. And so can I just say, brothers and sisters, be on your guard 
for how, not if, but how you are on the lookout to accuse others around you. Be on guard in your heart for how you are on the lookout to accuse other people. That might have stopped some people from doing what Jesus is about to do. Thankfully, not Jesus. He's more interested in doing good than getting the Pharisees to like him. And so he's going to move forward in verses 3 and 4 and 5 to do something that is just staggering. Well, that's our first point this morning. Legalism produces a critical, accusing heart. That's verses 1 through 2. Secondly, the second threat and danger of legalism, number two, is that legalism produces a hard, calloused heart. So legalism produces a critical, accusing heart, but legalism also produces a hard, calloused heart. This is verses 3 through 5. Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. He picks this man out of the crowd. So we're in a synagogue. Let's, let's pretend we are all in a synagogue together. We're all hanging out. And I just say to Sergio, Sergio, get up and come on up here. And he comes on up here. And there's a little bit of awkwardness. This doesn't typically happen in a church service. What's going on? Why is Sergio up here? And everybody in the synagogue would have known this man, unless uh, you're just visiting for the synagogue for that Sabbath. But everyone would have known this guy has a withered hand. What's Jesus going to do? Everybody knows Jesus can heal this man. What's going on? And he picks him up and he brings him to the very front of the service. Everyone can see him. This is probably the last thing that this guy wanted, by the way. I just want to be the center of attention. The first thing that this guy wanted was to be healed. So he's probably conflicted. I'm standing next to the healer, but I don't want to be up in front of everybody. Luke tells us that this man had a withered hand in his right hand, um, probably his working hand. Tradition tells us that he was a stone mason and he had lost the ability to work and had become a beggar. The word for withered in the Greek is a word for paralyzed, dried up, or atrophied. His hand is dried up, it's withered, it's, it's atrophied, it's paralyzed, it's dead. And Jesus brings this man up front. I just, I wonder, what are the followers of Jesus thinking at this point? We've got two sets of brothers, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We have Levi that's following now, Matthew, the tax collector. We've got five guys. We're going to see a list of the other people that Jesus is going to call as the 12 disciples. We've got these five guys hanging out. They just got in trouble a, a Sabbath ago for picking the heads of grain, and Jesus came to their defense. And I just wonder, as they're watching Jesus, Jesus calls this man up front. I wonder if they're thinking, man, this is about to get crazy, right? Something's about to go down. And Jesus says, verse 4, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? So he initiates the setting. He goes to their synagogue. He initiates calling this man up front. And he initiates asking the question. He is taking the fight to them. And he asks. In essence, he's asking, what am I allowed to do on the Sabbath? What are we allowed to do? Am I allowed to heal this man? What are we allowed to do on the Sabbath? If there was an immediate danger on the Sabbath, an immediate threat to someone's life, the Old Testament made provisions for those emergencies that the life of that individual would take precedence over keeping the law. 
in the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, there was a question that was posed, is there ever an exception to keeping the Sabbath? Is there ever a reason not to keep the Sabbath day laws? And the answer that the Mishnah gives in a passage called Yoma 8.6, as well as an apocryphal book in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 41. Again, these are not authoritative, inspired, infallible, inerrant scripture. These are just traditions, but they both give this answer. So the question is, is there ever a time where we can break the Sabbath day law? And the answer given is, quote, whichever way preserves Life, whichever way preserves life. If there's something that will preserve life, then do that even if it breaks the law. So that's what this question is. Is it allowable for me to do good and preserve life, to save a life? Is that allowed? But notice what Jesus is doing here. I love this. He's picking a man who has a terrible injury and a debilitating injury, but it is not life-threatening. In other words, this is a postponable healing. In the Pharisee's mind, Jesus should have said, I'd love to heal you, I can heal you, let's wait until tomorrow. Everything would have been fine if Jesus had done that. There is no emergency here. There's no urgency. There's no life being threatened. But for Jesus... He sees no need to wait to show compassion to this man. Pharisees are so concerned about their regulations being observed that they completely miss the point entirely. Their hearts in this passage are more shriveled than that man's hand. In the name of piety, they'd become so insensitive, not only to God's purposes for the Sabbath altogether, but also to the sufferings of their fellow men. And that's what legalism does. Legalism makes you uncaring and insensitive to the suffering and the problems of people around you. It gives you a hard heart, a calloused heart. And Jesus, by asking this question, he traps them in their own trap. We're going to see this a couple times in this gospel. It's never a good idea to try and trap the God of the universe. He will always flip that trap around and spring it on you. And he does that here. When he asks this question, I think you could cut the tension with a knife in this room. So again, picture it in your mind. All of a sudden, as the teaching is happening, Jesus says, hey, stop for a second. I'm going to call Sergio. He's going to come up here. And everybody knows who Sergio is. Everybody knows that he has a withered hand. Everybody knows that the healer is there and he can heal this man. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, am I allowed to heal him? What do you guys think? Am I allowed to heal him? Yes or no? Easy question. Am I allowed to heal this guy? And he springs the trap right in their faces. Why? Because if they say, no, you're not allowed to heal that man on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. We have laws. And by our laws, you're not allowed to heal this man. The entire congregation is going to boo and hiss at the Pharisees. This guy has had a withered hand for who knows how long. He hasn't been able to provide. He's been a beggar. And now Jesus shows up in our synagogue on this Sabbath. And you're saying, no, How calloused are you going to be, Pharisees? How uncaring. The Pharisees desperately want to keep the congregation. They want to keep the crowds. They don't want to lose the crowds. They want to be looked upon favorably with love and admiration and respect. And if they say, no, you're not allowed to heal this man, they're going to lose the crowd. 
But if they say, yes, you can heal this man. If they say to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, am I allowed to heal this guy? Is this okay? If they say yes, the charade is over. Their entire religious system has been, has been undone if they say yes. Why? Because they have a set of rules and they have commanded the people underneath them to abide by those rules. They have weaponized those rules and they've looked down on people who haven't kept those rules. And so if they say yes, I'm sure the congregation is going to say, thank you, we're excited to see the healing. But also, why now? Why are you changing your laws now? Why are you allowing this now? Why didn't you allow it when my grandma was sick? Why didn't you allow it when? They're going to be asking all sorts of questions and they're going to say, you are hypocrites. And they're going to walk away. And the religious leaders know this. And so they look at one another. I I just picture them uh, just huddling up. They're just looking, going, what are we going to do? And what do they do? They stay silent. They don't say anything. They know if we say no, we're in trouble. If they say yes, we're in trouble. We can't speak. So they remain silent, even though they know what the answer is. The answer is so obvious, but they remain silent. End of verse four. But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, verse five, looking at them with anger. The better translation of that word is with fury. Jesus is furious at the the Pharisees, at the religious leaders. He's angry. Why is he angry? Again, this is righteous anger. This isn't prideful anger the way that we tend to get angry with one another. Why does Jesus become angry? There's several reasons. Number one, the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, repairing the broken. And yet the Pharisees have established religious traditions on the same level and above God's own law and have completely missed the point. This is an obvious answer. It should have been yes, heal the man and we can all glorify the Lord and they fail because they completely missed the point. And in doing so, a second reason why I think Jesus is angry is they have twisted God's words. They've misrepresented God to the people. The people think that the Pharisees are speaking God's words. They're speaking on behalf of God. Have you ever told someone to say something on your behalf? Maybe I tell Donovan, hey, Donovan, I didn't get to talk with Christian about the party that he's having. Uh, Could you tell him, I'm really sorry. I wish I could be there. I can't go to the party. And then Donovan takes those words and goes to Christian and says, hey, Patrick said he hates your parties and he's so glad he can't make it tomorrow. And then I hear Christian goes, excuse me, I don't think we're friends anymore. And I hear, wait, 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 Donovan, that's not at all what I said. You misrepresented me. That's frustrating. That can be angering. How much more so when God's holy word, which was so clear, is twisted. I've been reading through my Bible reading program and my my plan took me through Job the last few weeks And it just shocked me. It just reminded me again, Job chapter 42, verse seven, at the very end of the book, very last chapter, everything has come to the conclusion and God speaks to Job's friends. And he says this, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends. He's speaking to the one friend and to the others. Why? My wrath is kindled against you. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right. 
That's why Jesus is angry. Pharisees, you are not speaking of me what is right. You're not representing the character of God to the people. And you as the religious leaders should be doing that. Jesus never became angry at tax collectors or sinners. He only became angry at the religious leaders. You can mark it down. Self-righteous people make Jesus angry. He's outraged. He's outraged. But he's not just furious, verse 5. He looks around at them with anger. And he's grieved at their hardness of heart. He's furious and he's grieved. That word for grief there in the Greek is only found in this verse in the entire New Testament. It's a unique word. And it describes an aspect of sorrow that is so deep, coinciding with deep fury over what's going on. There's deep sorrow and sadness over what's going on. Why? Because of their hardness of heart. I wonder, would Jesus say that he's angry with us this morning? Would Jesus look at our hardness of heart and our misrepresentation of his character and be angry with us this morning? Would Jesus be sad and grieved? Are we a grief to him because of our legalistic hearts? He's going to turn around and look in verse 5. He looks around at the Pharisees and my friends, he's looking at us as well. He's turning around and looking at us. And my question is, what is he seeing as he looks at us? Our hardness of heart grieves Jesus. These verses should sadden us because we all know that we have hard, calloused hearts. And instead of saying, as we read this, I'm so glad I'm not like the Pharisees. We should be saying, God, give me a soft heart and reveal where I have a hard heart. Please don't let me grieve you. Tell me what you want from me and give me ears to hear and a heart that's ready to embrace everything. You're Lord of the Sabbath and you're Lord of all. Jesus is looking at them with anger. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. And in front of everybody, he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. Four words in English, three words in Greek. It's quick, it's to the point. And notice the man at the end of verse five stretches the hand out and his hand was restored. That follows the pattern that we've seen the entire way through the gospel of Mark so far about miracles. When Jesus performs a miracle, he takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem. So this man stretches out his withered hand And it's restored immediately. He doesn't need physical therapy. It's been atrophied. It's been paralyzed. It's dead. And he heals it and stretches it out. And then it immediately has full range of movement, full strength. But the religious leaders, they don't want anything to do with it. They don't want anything to do with the glory of Jesus showing forth in this miracle. Number one, we need to be Uh, aware and understand that legalism produces a critical accusing heart. Number two, the second danger of legalism is that legalism produces a hard, calloused heart. So legalism produces a critical accusing heart. And secondly, legalism produces a hard, calloused heart. And again, if you go back to last Sunday, 
The second point in last Sunday's message, beware of getting the little things right while getting the big things wrong. And I said last Lord's Day, if you do that, you will end up having a little heart. And so that's the danger here. Legalism, if you do not caution yourself, if you're not on guard against your heart, getting the little things right while totally missing the big things, then you're you're going to, number two, from this message, you're going to have a hard, calloused heart. That leads to verse six and our last product of legalism, the last threat and danger of legalism. Number three, legalism leads to death. Legalism leads to death. It produces a critical accusing heart. It produces a hard calloused heart and it leads to death. Again, last Lord's day, we must joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord of all. And if we do not, it leads to death. Verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. This escalates fast. We are just barely three chapters into the gospel of Mark. And Jesus's life is being threatened. And notice it says they might destroy him. That's not the word for kill. That word was used in verse four. Is it okay to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? This is a stronger word. They want to utterly annihilate Jesus. They want him so out of the picture. They hate him and they want him dead. Jesus doing a good thing made the religious leaders mad. Why? Because he didn't do it their way. He didn't do it their, their way. This is what legalism produces. Do it my way or else I'm mad at you. I'm so glad that Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to do good anyway. I'm going to do good anyway. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says that Jesus went about doing good. I wonder if that could be said of us as a church, that we go about doing good. The Pharisees go out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. This is a political group. This is a group of people. You can hear Herod in the name, the people, the followers of Herod and the people involved with Herod. This is a political group. So they're going to them for help politically because they're religious leaders. They don't have much sway politically. And so they're going to get help politically. If we want this man dead, we're going to have to find a crime. We're going to have to accuse him of that crime. We're going to have to kill him according to the laws of the land because of that crime. So let's get the Herodians to help us. But notice... There is intense hypocrisy in what the Pharisees are doing in verse 6. First of all, I don't think that there's a worse way to violate the Sabbath than to plan a way of killing Jesus on it, right? Like they're all angry at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, and they're going to go out the same day and make a plan to kill him. That's the worst way to break the Sabbath. Secondly, they go to the Herodians. They're angry at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. The Herodians never kept the Sabbath, ever. They don't care about the Sabbath. But the Pharisees are going to partner with them. The Herodians were licentious. Live however you want. No rules, just true hedonists. And yet they go to them. And they're going to work together on how to kill Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is so informative to our understanding of what the gospel does. Because notice, it has offended the Pharisees. 
The gospel offends religious people, but it's also offended the Herodians. The gospel is an offense to these licentious people, to the religious and the irreligious alike. The gospel cuts right in the middle and offends both groups. The gospel can't fit in a moralistic understanding or in a relativistic worldview. The gospel doesn't fit in either camp. It goes in between both. And so both Herodian and Pharisee say, we want this man dead. The progressive approach, progressive worldview that may be embodied here by the Herodians. Choose whatever is right for you. You are a law unto yourself. Whatever you want goes. Whatever you feel is right is good for you. You determine right and wrong. self discovery for the Herodians and people like them is the key. That's the law of the land. You get to decide what works best for you. On the other side, you have the Pharisees who are representatives of a religious moral conformity. You must abide by certain rules and be a good person in order to get a good afterlife. And according to the gospel, both of those are wrong. Both of those are just a form of you being your own savior. The Pharisees say, we don't really need a savior because we are a savior unto ourselves because we keep our rules. If they were to die and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? They would say, because we're good people. We've done good. We've lived according to the laws. We're good. And the gospel offends that way of thinking. The gospel also offends relativism. When somebody says, I can do whatever I want to do. I am a law unto myself. Therefore, I don't need a savior because I get to save myself through self-discovery, through legislating my own morality, and through dictating whatever I want to be right is right. The gospel doesn't say the good are in and the bad are out. That's what the Pharisees would have said. That's the gospel. Good people are in, bad people are out. The gospel doesn't say that. Gospel doesn't say open-minded people are in and judgmental people are out. That's what the Herodians would have said. Be more open-minded. Live it up. Be okay with differences of opinion. No, the Bible says the humble and the broken are in. And the prideful who do not recognize their need for a savior are out. Only the people who know that they aren't better than others and aren't good enough to attain to heaven on their own. Only those people are in. Jesus said it earlier in Mark chapter 2, it isn't the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. When you go to a doctor, you don't want advice, you want intervention. Please step in and help. You don't go to Jesus for advice. He's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He's making outrageous claims. I forgive sin. I'm doing away with your religion. I am God. Every prophet or religious leader would say something to the effect of thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't do this. He shows up and he says, I tell you, I am God. I'm not speaking on behalf of God. I am God. And the bottom line is you can't just like somebody like this. You can't just like somebody who does this, who says this. You can't just like them. You either say, I treasure you above all things. You are Lord, you are master, I am your servant. You have my will, you have my affections and I want to follow you every single day of my life. Or you say, I wish you were dead. Those are the only two options. And a legalistic heart will say, I wish you were dead. I want to be a savior unto myself. But there's no middle ground here. If you are here this morning and you say, 
I think Jesus is kind of cool. I like him. I think he's just, I'm in the middle of the road. I don't quite say I treasure him and he's my life. And I definitely don't say I, I want him dead. I just like him. I would say, I think that that's a, a good clue that you don't fully understand who he is. Because when you figure out who he is in the scriptures, those are the only two possibilities. And so the Pharisees say, you know what? We're going to go with option B. Let's kill him. Let's destroy him. And a plot to take his life has already begun. And it's only the beginning of chapter three. If you don't, live out the principles that we saw last Lord's Day. If you're not careful about placing your application of the law above the heart of the law, then you will have a legalistic heart which produces a critical accusing heart. If you are not aware of getting the little things right in your life while not getting the big things right, you don't care about the big things, just the little things, then you are going to have a hard, calloused heart. And if you don't joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord of all, then it will lead, your legalism will lead to Jesus uh, saying to you, depart from me, I never knew you. But what Jesus is doing in all of these controversies is he's not just challenging two bits of legalism here and there. He's launching an entirely new system that destroys their old one. This is why he said that the new wine can't fit in the old wineskins. He's obliterating their way of thinking. And I wonder if he would do that with you and me this morning. Where are we blind in our own adherence to rules and regulations so much so that we lose the beauty and the power of the gospel in our lives? We press into our legalistic understanding of things instead of pressing into grace, which motivates obedience, yes, but press into grace. Press into grace because the law can't save you. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. Even here in this account, the law of the Sabbath could give this man physical rest. This man with a withered hand, he could have physical rest on the Sabbath. But the law of the Sabbath couldn't heal this man from his disease. Couldn't restore him back to full health. So too, the law cannot save us. It points us to the one who alone can save us. And yet we so often feel and think and functionally live out that we can save ourselves. You remember Galatians chapter three, Paul tells the Galatians verses one, two, three, who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? You foolish Galatians. And then he asks this, having been begun by the spirit, you were saved not by any work you could do. Having been begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's legalism. Legalism says, Jesus, you saved me. Thanks, I've got it from here, and I can do the rest. And Paul says, no, 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 may it never be. The spirit who began the work, he's the only one. He's the only hope we have of that work being finished in our lives. Legalism says, I can do good works to earn God's favor. And Jesus breaks in to say, I've done all the work. I've earned all the favor. Rest in me. The heart of the Sabbath was to rest to cease working and to rest in God's work. The Sabbath was begun by God as a pattern on that first week of creation. And God doesn't get tired. The Bible is very clear. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't grow weary. So why does he rest? This is so informative to our understanding of what the Sabbath is. You can rest either when you're tired 
Or you can rest when you're so satisfied in the work that you've done, you know there's nothing more you need to do. And you can say, it's finished. You can rest. You can cease to work because you're so satisfied in finishing whatever that accomplishment is, whatever the project is. You look at it and you've worked and you're able to say, not because you're tired, but because you're so satisfied, you're able to say, it's finished. That's what God did on the first Sabbath. God says, I'm done. I'm so satisfied. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. I'm done. And that's what God wants us to do through the Sabbath. God wants us to be so completely satisfied in what God has done that we say, he's enough. I don't need anything else. He's enough. True rest only comes from resting in his finished work on the cross. Because the Lord of the Sabbath said, it is finished, we can rest from religion forever. We can say, yes, it is. Amen and amen. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, there is a Sabbath rest for us as believers. We don't keep the Sabbath the way that the Jews kept the Sabbath. We don't need to. We keep the Sabbath in a very different way today. It's not going to church on Sunday. We keep the Sabbath by saying, I rest in the finished work of Jesus. I will not work to earn my salvation. I will not work to earn God's favor. He did the work for me and therefore I rest. And only those people, Hebrews says, will enter their final rest of eternity with God forever in heaven. Jesus is not coming to reform religion. He's coming to be the end of religion altogether, once and for all, and replace it with himself. A preacher once gave an example, a preacher by the name of Dick Lucas, great preacher, gave an example of an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. This is how the conversation would go. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple? Where is your holy place? And the Christian replies, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. The Roman says, no temple? Where do your priests work? Where do they do their rituals? The Christian says, we don't have priests to mediate between God and man. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is our mediator and we trust in him alone. No priests, says the Roman. But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? The Christian says, we don't need a sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. The pagan says, what kind of religion is this? And the Christian says, it's not a religion at all. It's not a religion at all. My friends, do you love and trust Jesus? Let's follow him together today. God, thank you so much for your word that every time it is unfolded in our eyes and in our minds and in our hearts, we see new aspects about your glory and we are undone by our own depravity, our own pride, our own um, lack of pressing into grace, but into legalism. God, guard our hearts from that even today. May we stand in Christ and in him alone, not in legalistic efforts, not in our own striving. May we stand in Christ and in Christ alone. And we pray in his name for his glory. Amen.